We're in James chapter 1. That's page 1009 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. James chapter 1 beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, <coughs> with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of firstfruits of his creations. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the book of James, written by Jesus' brother. Probably one of the earliest Christian writings, the earliest of the New Testament books. These are the words that are in the book of James. And in that particular book, he starts out by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers. So he's speaking to believers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So how are we doing? How'd you do this week? Did you count it all joy when that trial came? Are you thinking about it at least? Are you having it come to mind? Are you realizing that it is purposeful if you're a believer? It is not random. It's not happenstance that causes it to occur. But it is the purposeful hand of God allowing that to come to you for a purpose, for a design purpose, that God might produce perseverance, stick-to-itiveness in you, so that you will be fully mature, lacking in nothing, is what the Scripture says. There is purpose, glorious purpose, in that trial. And so we can count it as joy and should. And to the degree that which we don't, it's sin. There's no other way to say it. When those difficulties come into your life and you grumble and complain and do all kinds of other gymnastics around it, but count it joy, you are guilty of sin. Because it's a command. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. And it incorporates all of them doesn't say certain trials, it says trials of various kinds. The gamut is wide and deep, and you've experienced them this week. You have had a trial come into your life, maybe some a deeper, stronger, more severe one than others, certainly. But if you live, or at least if you were awake this week, you had one come. Because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that's out of sync with the way God created it. And those things come to us. And so the question is, how are we learning to deal with them? What are we doing? How are we responding to those kinds of things? Are we, are we learning to count it joy and then? 
going a step farther and beginning to ask God for wisdom. Give me wisdom, Lord, and how to live in it. That's what the scripture tells us to do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In the midst of that trial, it's okay to ask for wisdom. God, help me to know how to deal with this and how to live with this and and maybe to see some of the purpose of it, although not always. But God, give me wisdom. And that wisdom has to do with knowing some things about God. I think to to ask in faith, it says, don't be a double-minded in the sense when you ask for wisdom, don't be double-minded. What double-minded is, is is not believing the right things about God. Not believing the fundamental right, right thing about God. If you're a Christian. And that is that he is a generous God. That's what the scripture says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And when it says you, he's speaking to believers. Any of you lacks wisdom, any of you who are believers, any of you who are in Christ, can't guarantee that for unbelievers. But he's speaking to brothers. He's speaking to believers. And he says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God and he will give you generously wisdom without reproach. There's nothing about God withholding that. And so part of, I think, the truth of what he's saying is believe God is a generous God to his people, a gracious God to his people. Do you fundamentally believe that? That's what the gospel speaks to us, that he is a gracious God. Do you live that way? Do you tell that truth to the world about your God, that he is gracious and generous in that regard? And then last week, we looked at one of those examples of the wisdom that God extends. I think he gives us a little window of what some of that wisdom might look like. And in verse 9 through 12, we looked at the idea of the lowly brother. And one of the things that he extends to those people and intended to extend to the people there that he was writing to and that this letter would circulate among those that probably were dispersed out of this, the stoning of Stephen. Remember when the church was, was sent out and sent into persecution? These were probably some of the remnants of that, of those people who scattered when the first martyr was stoned as Paul witnessed it there. What he writes to them who were beleaguered Christians, most of them, poor Christians, having a difficult time, Christians, not very powerful in their setting because they were exiled and and they were thinking, is God against us? Is God not for us? He speaks to them. He says, this God is a gracious, generous God who will give you wisdom. And in fact, what he says to them in that circumstance is, brother, boast, boast in your poverty is really what he says. See your poverty. The wisdom he extends is to see your poverty as a blessing from God. Boast in it. Boast in it. That's what the scripture says. See it as advantageous to you that you're in that circumstance. Here they were tempted, weren't they? Tempted because of their own hearts. We'll look at that in a little while. Tempted to believe God had disowned them. Tempted to believe God wasn't being very good to them. And what he says is, no, 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 that's not the case. In fact, it is advantageous to you. Boast in your humiliation. Boast in it. See the advantage of that. 
And then he turns the tables a bit and he speaks to the rich and he certainly may have been speaking to some who did have more means among those Christians. It seems that he was speaking to Christians when he turns and he says, and you who are rich, boast in your humiliation. Realize that that the tables will be turned and that in fact, um, being rich is not advantageous for you. Beware. Beware of the danger of your riches, the tendency to look down on others, as we talked about last week, maybe not even notice them, the tendency to get proud, somehow think it's about me. Realize how quickly all of that will one day vanish. All of it will be gone. Realize how, how your life is but a midst, midst that appears for a moment and is gone. Be careful. Be careful. So that's some of the wisdom that he extends, the kind of wisdom that he extends in this particular text. See it properly. See your circumstance properly from the way God sees it. And then he moves on. And he moves on to the next section in which he deals with the issue of temptation. He deals with the issue, really, of... of uh, an improper response to all of this, beginning to blame God. So I want to make a couple of points now in this couple of things about this particular text that I want to say this morning as we move on through the book of James. First of all, um, that, that tests from God, that's what a trial is. Remember up in, in uh, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing... So trials and testing are in the same boat there. So tests, tests or trials, are gifts from God and not traps. Point number one, tests, trials, tests, whatever you want to call them, are gifts from God and they are not traps set by God. There's a danger, I think, sometimes when those things come if we don't have the proper view of who God is, that he's a gracious and generous God, we somehow think he's out to get us. He's out to trip us up. And and when you think of the word test, sometimes you think you, you can get it wrong, can't you? Think somehow God is just waiting for us to make a wrong move in this test. But that's not, I think, the context in which it's is shared. In fact, I think... Um, I think it's rather the opposite of that. I think these tests are purposeful from the hand of God. They are for our benefit. They are not traps, but they are to bless us and to help us. And the scripture earlier says they are to produce steadfastness in us. God's goal is to produce steadfastness in his people regarding faith. A steadfastness that it says when it has its full effect will make you perfect and complete and nothing. So the goal of the test is not to somehow trip you up, but it is to produce that. It is a blessing from God to produce that in your life, to make you stronger in faith. Now, it, it also has the, uh, the uh, result of, of dividing in the sense that it, it shows those who are truly in the faith and those that are not. It it does have a sense in which it reveals true faith. That's the whole series that we're in, what true faith looks like. And so tests have the ability to 
to show whether it's true faith or not. But if it is true faith, if we truly have rested in Christ, it is not to somehow rip that away from us, but rather to strengthen that, to make it stronger, to make it more steadfast in our lives. And so we must see, I think, it as that. Because testing does divide. It does divide. The testing here does, does divide. And, and it can produce two different things. One, I think it produces in believers. One begins to show us evidence that maybe they're not true believers. And if they persist in it, shows that they, in fact, are not true believers. The first thing that this trial or testing can do for us is it can cause us to grow deeper in faith and love of God. It can cause us to become more dependent. As the trial comes, as the test comes, we lean more heavily upon him. We rest more heavily in the promise that it says later in the book of James that he will extend more grace to us. He will help us. He will give us all the grace we need, I believe, is his promise. God will give us all the grace we need in any particular circumstance of life to live for his glory. Because he has said, whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So I believe when he says meeting our need, that's our deepest need. And and when it talks about extending grace, he will give us all the strength we need in the trial, in the test, to live for his glory. That's what he does for his people. He provides that for them, that they might learn that, that he does. So the next one they come to, they're stronger. And the next one they're stronger. They walk through life. They persevere in that kind of relationship as they become more and more dependent upon him. But we also know that when tests come, sometimes people can respond other than that. And sometimes they can say and see it as a failure on God's part. The test comes and they begin to see it as a failure on God's part to not take very good care of them. And though they begin to follow him or appear to follow him, as the test comes or the trial comes, they say, God, you're just not doing a very good job. I gave my life to you. I trusted you. And here's what you do to me. Here's what you deliver to me. And, and they go from beginning to subtly think that to sometimes directly attacking God, beginning to lift, lift their clenched fist and accuse him of malice. God, this is too severe. This is too much. You have pushed it too far. The envelope has gone way farther than it should have gone. And you are leading me to malice. You are the cause of my malice. You're just not doing a good job. And there becomes an anger and a seething. So tests can do both of those things. It can cause both to happen. But the intent of the test for God's people, this is the point. The intent is not the latter. That is not God's intent. God's intent in a test is to strengthen. He's, he's to reveal authentic faith. That's the purpose of the test, to, to authenticate the faith of his people, to strengthen it, to cause them to persevere, not to somehow undermine it. Get, get that out of your head. Strike that from... God's purpose in testing. Testing and trials are purposeful, but not purposeful in somehow to to undermine God's people. At times, do people fail them? Yes. 
but it is not God's intent for that to happen. And ultimately, I believe that he will not allow his children to ultimately fail the test. Because to ultimately fail the test would be to be in unbelief. There can be seasons, there can be seasons where people waver in the midst of tests, even true believers. But ultimately, they don't land ultimately in malice, ultimately in accusatory places. But God uses it in their life for good to teach them the life of faith, to teach them to persevere. And that is his goal. That's his purpose. So, so stop a minute and think in your life this week. Name it. What trial is there? Maybe it didn't just happen this week. Maybe it's been a long-standing thing in your life and you've, you've never named it. So you can't count it joy because you really won't even admit it. But begin to acknowledge it. Begin to thank God for it because it is purposeful. And it comes from the hand of a God who is generous and gracious in his purposes. Now I understand some of you may be in some difficult places, some difficult trials. I want to minimize it at all. But it is so important. It is so important that we see God properly in this and that he's not somehow out to undermine us as his children. It's not his intent. So tests, first of all, are gifts. Are gifts. That's why you can thank God for them. They're gifts. You can't thank God for traps. If you see them as traps, you won't thank him for them. You will only thank him for them if you see them as gifts. From his hand. Point one. Number two. How do we know that? How do we know what I just said is true? What does the scripture do to, to do that? What, do, what does it lead us to? How does it show us that? And, and uh, it, first of all, affirms to us that when we're tempted, when we're tempted to to, to do something, to sin, to fail the test, that doesn't come from God. Look at the text, first of all. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. So the the trial comes. The test comes. And along with it comes some temptations that come because of our hearts. We're tempted to to do some things or to believe some things that are, are wrong or not true about God. Where does that come from? Where does that temptation come from? The, the people here were saying, some of them evidently, that, that God was doing it. They were blaming God. They were saying, God, you have pushed me too far. This is too much. You are setting a trap for me. All of that. And the scripture pushes back strong in that and says, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do it for that reason. God does it to strengthen you. And the reason that you're tempted is because of your own hearts. Because of things in your own hearts that are causing that. Things you believe about God that aren't true and right. 
And so don't look at God. Don't blame God. Because God is for his people and not against them. He's a generous and gracious God. He isn't out seeing if he can get them to fall. That's not what God is doing. That's not how he operates with his people. It is your own heart that leads you into sin in the midst of trial and testing. It's your own heart. And so if it's your own heart, what's the answer? Now that can happen to unbelievers. Certainly their hearts, they're dead, the scripture says, in trespasses and sins. Those who don't trust in Christ are dead, and so their hearts... But even believers can can be tempted by their hearts. We aren't without sin as Christians. We're not sinless. We still have the propensity to sin because of our hearts. So what's the answer in both of those cases? What's the answer for the believer who finds that somehow he succumbed to the temptation to believe wrong things about God, believe that God is setting traps for him when these trials come, so therefore he can't thank God? You see how that sin is multiplied? It's a sin not to thank God for those trials, but you certainly aren't going to thank him if you think he's out to get you. And so the sin is multiplied by believing wrong things about God. Christians can have distorted ideas about that. So you see that it's our own hearts. What's the remedy? What's the remedy for both, believer and unbeliever? It goes on in the text to tell us what it is. It says, be not deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He talks about God. He just reminds them of God, that God is the giver of good gifts to his children. He's the giver. He he doesn't have a propensity within him. God, there's nothing in God that would set and plot to set a trap for his children to trip them up. That's our hearts, folks. That's our hearts. We do that. We secretly hope somebody will not be successful as they maybe could be because how it might look upon us. We have propensity to that. We have propensity to compete. We have propensity to try to climb a ladder. We have that even as believers. We have that propensity. So it's hard to imagine a God who doesn't, a God who isn't out to somehow trip up his children, trip up somebody else, or to wish them ill. God doesn't do that for his children. Now, there will come a time, you understand, we shouldn't have to say this all, but understand that there will come a time of, of judgment, a time when justice has to be done, a time when for God's holiness to be upheld, there will be a time of separation, a time of judgment where unbelievers will be separated from believers. And, and that will come, but, but it is not because God wishes ill. That's just what justice does. That's just the result of justice. Because God has been so offended and that justice has not been paid for. The, but the gospel is what changes all of that. The gospel makes all of that different. And that's what he goes into here after he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Then he tells about the most perfect of those gifts. 
And that is of his own will. In verse uh, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creation. Would, remember a few weeks ago, we said the gospel, where do you find the gospel in James? That's one of the places. By the word of truth, he brings people to life. Uh, by the truth of the gospel, he brings people to life. And so what's the remedy? What's the remedy for us? What's the remedy if, if, if when the temptation or the, the trial comes and the testing comes, if we're tempted by our own hearts to be, to become bitter or embittered or somehow accusatory to God, what's the remedy? For the unbeliever, it's repentance. It's repentance. We just repent. We just remember the gospel. We remember the graciousness of God. We're tempted to doubt it. We're tempted to not believe it. We're tempted to accuse God of not taking very good care of us because we, we somehow see him improperly. What do we need to be? What needs to happen? We just need to see him properly again. We need to see the gospel. See that he's not a God like that. He is a gracious and generous God. And the pinnacle of that generosity is in the gospel and all that Christ did. So we push back against it. We push back those thoughts that are not true about God away from us as we repent for even entertaining them. We repent. Repent and glory in the gospel again. Glory in the work of Christ. Glory that, that God has already forgiven that sin that I'm repenting of in Christ. He's already put the punishment for that upon Christ. Oh God, thank you that it not be held against me. That we repent. We just acknowledge it. We recognize it. We're not We're not doing it. We're not counting it joy because we're thinking wrong things about God. We're we're entertaining the idea because of our own sinful hearts because that's the way we operate, that he, he really isn't a generous God. But he's out to get us. And you just repent. You just just say, God, God, help me. Create a new and holy passion within me that we sang. We're going to sing it at the end. Do it, Lord. But it's the same for an unbeliever. What if, what if you begin to wonder, maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe I, I really don't understand this because I've been bitter and angry at God for a long time. I don't even tell everybody, but deep down inside, I am really angry. I, I really believe he just gave me a bad hand. He just dealt me a bad hand. He set a trap, and when I was in the trap, he pulled it. That's how I view him, and I, I'm angry that he set a trap for me. I'm, I am so angry. Well, a believer can do that, but also certainly that's the, that's the, really the, the pinnacle of unbelief. To stay in that. To continue in that. To really not see him as a gracious God. Because when you, when you see him as a gracious God, when you begin to really see the, the pinnacle of that graciousness in the gospel, as you see it, as you see it, you respond to it when you see it. But an unbeliever doesn't ever see it. They never see it. So they can't respond. They never see God as gracious. But maybe today, maybe today by the word of truth that we have shared, the scriptures, maybe by the word of truth, God is, God is awakening you to see that he's really not a God out to get you. He's not a God who sets traps. Rather, he's a God who says, come unto me, all you that are 
weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, rest for your soul and I will be gracious to you and you can know the reality that for all of your life, surely goodness and mercy can follow you. Not just this life, but all of life, all of eternity. How do you see God? You see him setting a trap? Or do you see him as a gracious, generous God? I pray it's the latter. And if there's any blending of those two, maybe to the full extreme of being an unbeliever or just in the mix of a believer who's caught back in some of those lies, the remedy this morning is repent. The remedy this morning is acknowledge it to God. The remedy this morning is to say, God, help me. Help me to begin to count it all joy when those trials come because they're full of purpose. They're full of glorious purpose. And in fact, you are a good, you are a good and a holy God. You are. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, pinned some words to her daughter. Her daughter Esther, who was married to Aaron Burr, if you know history, church history at all, who had died just six months, six months previous to this letter being written to her from her mother, Sarah. Sarah wrote this letter at the death of Jonathan Edwards, who was a great preacher, East Coast, Great Awakenings. In fact, he died just, just a few days before he was to become the president of Princeton College at that time in 1758. But listen to what she writes, because this is a person who, because of various trials, had had perseverance developed in her life by her God. This is, this is the fruit of letting God work out his purposeful plan with trial and testing, his good and purposeful plan in that to produce steadfastness so that we'll be Mature and lacking in nothing. Listen to a woman who was mature and lacking in nothing. My very dear child, Esther, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. She's acknowledging it hurts. It's okay to acknowledge they hurt. We live in a broken world. That's just reality. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. Let us not Let us not accuse God, what she's saying. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long, but God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. She begins with the words, what shall I say? A holy and good God. A holy and good God. Do you see your God that way? That he's gracious and compassionate to you? And that these trials are full of purpose for you? That he's not out to trip you up? He's not out to undermine you? 
He's not subtly hoping at the very end he can whack you off. That is not God's intention. Never will be and never has been. Christ speaks to us that his intention is to be gracious to us, compassionate to us, and build perseverance in us. We're going to sing together this morning a song that I hope will help us to respond to God however we need to respond. If you are a believer here today and it's gotten a bit cloudy, the holiness and goodness of God, that you need to repent of that. If you're an unbeliever this morning and you've been embittered toward him for years maybe, I would encourage you to ask him to open your eyes and to see the God that he is. Let's stand and sing. Give me one pure and holy passion Give me one magnificent obsession Give me one glorious ambition for my life To know and follow hard after you Let's repeat that first part again Give me one pure and holy passion And give me one magnificent obsession Give me one glorious ambition for my life To know and follow hard after you Know and follow hard after you To grow as your disciple in the truth This world is empty, pale and poor Compared to knowing you, my Lord Lead me on and I will run after you Lead me on and I will run after you To know and follow hard after you To grow as your disciple in the truth This world is empty, pale and poor Compared to knowing you, my Lord Lead me on and I will run after you. Lead me on and I will run after you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll help us to be a people who will do just that as you cause it to happen within us, Father that we will go hard after a God who is holy and good. And that we will, in fact, learn what it means to count it all joy when we face various trials because it is the loving hand of God building perseverance within us. 
building the kind of faith within us that was exhibited by Sarah Edwards. Lord, help us to be that kind of people. Help us, Father, to see you as you truly are toward your people as a good and gracious, loving God committed to our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Go on God's peace. Thank you.